Welcome to Empower Humans. Welcome again to the Empower Humans podcast. This is episode 145 today with Jeremy Pollock. Jeremy is a conflict resolution specialist, also author of the book, The Conflict Resolution Playbook, and he holds a master's degree in negotiation, conflict resolution, and peace building. Why, oh, why are we discussing this topic? Well, we haven't covered this before. And by the way, it's a part of many of our lives in various degrees, whether some of us have road rage or <laughs> some other thing like that. Uh, these are topics that I think are very important to gain some skills, knowledge, understanding, both in the workplace and uh, at home with our families, in marriages and different relationships like that. So that's why I want to invite Jeremy on. We covered a, a wide range of topics from the psychology and uh, history of this sort of thing, uh, also to, of course, topics of how to resolve effectively uh, these particular you know, conflicts and things that happen. So jump into the interview, but I want to remind you, as always, first, you are absolutely priceless. That will never change. No matter what other people say, do, have around us, let's not be influenced so easily by the things around us. We need to become our own self-contained, uh, well-oiled machine of uh, confidence. Yeah, I know that's easier said than done, and we're all at various places with different aspects of that. But I want you to know that I support you and love you, and uh, <laughs> along with all that, and of course, uh, as usual, you're never alone. You can reach out, info at empowerhumans.com, at empower101 on Instagram and Twitter, and uh, just remember, the riches are found in you. It's not in all this other material nonsense in the world and other things that we uh, get caught up in that become kind of a delusional version of uh, real value. So remember, you're priceless, you're never alone, and of course our challenge is study, find something that uh, resonates with you. I've been saying this, I think we've said this on every episode as we challenge people, but study, learn something, stimulate our minds, just tune ourselves to truth. And as we do that, I promise uh, you can be in a much better place overall in life. And we need to do it regularly. I would submit daily, even if it's 10 minutes a day or an hour, whatever you've got, five minutes or while you're commuting, put on an audiobook. It doesn't mean you can't also listen to music and do other things as well. Let's find balance in our lives, but also let's study and learn, grow, stimulate our minds. Even if you're listening to fiction or reading fiction or some other thing, that's okay. Stimulate your mind. Find what resonates with you. Get to the core of who you are. And uh, the second challenge is make great moments. I got to spend time, as usual, you guys have heard me talk about this with my boys um, over the weekend and at other times, you know, Legos and swimming. And, uh, you know, I've been setting aside time on the weekends on Sunday to talk to them individually as well and uh, just have kind of our own one-on-one -on -one time uh, because these days and these years are just going to fly right by. And before we know it, uh, we'll all be older <laughs> at the very least. And, uh, you know, tomorrow when you have kids, they're just a little bit bigger. They're a little bit more, I don't know about mature at the time. It's hard to say at times, but um, that day is gone. That that moment is gone. So let's make great moments out of the moments of our lives. Live in the now and do our best with that. Don't beat yourself up, but make great moments. These will be pillars in our lives as we look back on our lives, as this journey comes to an end for all of us at some point uh, to look back on and find strength, despite all of us having weaknesses and mistakes and all that nonsense, that making great moments uh, will largely, I think, make up for a lot of that in a lot of ways. Um, the last challenge, of course, very simple. Let's keep doing this podcast together. I'm really excited to bring you this interview. Um, it's a little bit different topic than some of what we're used to, but I like to change it up a little bit sometimes. So uh, without further ado, let's jump right in. Here we are with Jeremy Pollock. Here we go. 
We are pleased today to welcome Jeremy Pollock, who is a conflict resolution specialist and expert. Jeremy, how are you today, my friend? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Phil? I'm uh, doing just fine, thanks. So you're coming to us today from uh, beautiful Miami, right? I am in Miami. Yes, sir. Are you, are you from there originally, or where are you from? No, I actually grew up in Los Angeles, um, and then you know, sort of moved around a lot uh, over the last few years. And we just uh, we're just moving to. I mean, we're in Miami now, waiting for our, our place to be available, and we're going to be moving in. Uh, my wife and I are going to be moving in at the end of uh, this month of April. So um, oh, yeah, we're just moving here, actually. Yeah, yeah very excited. Very excited. <laughs> Lots of people moving here. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I, I haven't actually lived in Miami. Actually, I don't, I've only been to the airport, come to think. Of. I've been all the, over Florida, but not Miami for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> I flew through the airport going to South America and stuff, but um, you like it apparently because you're moving there. <laughs> Oh yeah, we love it. Love the weather. Love love the love the diversity. Love of uh, you know lots of stuff to do. Lots of different types of people. Um, so lot yeah, you know, lots of fun. Okay, cool. Same yeah. same deal in Los Angeles though too. It's just heavier traffic, higher cost of living, all that kind of fun stuff. Right? Exactly. Yeah, higher cost of living, uh, different types of politics. <laughs> so it, yeah. it's uh, we're a little more suited to to be out here. A lot of folks are fleeing California in various ways. But anyway, yeah. hopefully they'll turn that around. California is a beautiful place. It's just there's a lot it of is, weird stuff. <laughs> yeah, I lived in yeah, lots of weird stuff. Heart, you know, lot, lots of uh, um, you know, it's high cost of living, high taxes, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about this. Uh, you know, we've never actually had a conversation with anyone about this topic per se on the on the podcast. So I was like, this is, sounds like a fascinating thing to get into. I mean, you well, specialize. <laughs> What's that? I said, I'm glad we a little unique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This will be a unique uh, go-to kind of episode about <laughs> conflict resolution. I mean, it's something, speaking for myself, I've been in various forms of conflict in my life, whether that's in the workplace or within my family, you know, unfortunately, and things like that at times. Um, let, let's, before we get into some of the details of all this, um, tell me a little bit about your background, because I know you have... Uh, education in this particular, like you have a master's degree, as I understand it, negotiation, conflict resolution, and peace building. What made you want to go down this path and how far back do you want to go to tell us <laughs> your story? Oh, well, I mean, uh, let's see, we can go far back, but um, I, I guess I'll try to sum it up by, um, I, you know, I was, I came from a martial arts background and um, was a martial arts instructor and I owned a couple of academies and did that for uh, quite a while. And uh got really interested in the psychology of conflict and conflict resolution. Um, you know, sort of how, how do we deescalate situations without having to use, you know, physical force or defense or something like that. And I was interested in, you know, kind of learning it more from an academic perspective. So I actually went to school for, I, I got really interested in evolutionary psychology, which is um, you can study a lot of different things, but the area that I really studied was the evolution of group conflict and, co and cooperation and um, went to school and got a master's degree in evolutionary anthropology, um, studying studying that field. And then I wanted to do something a little bit more pragmatic. And I kind of piggybacked that into another master's degree uh, in conflict resolution and peace building, which is a more applied degree. Um, so using more skills and techniques to actually do conflict resolution work on the ground. So after those degrees, um, yeah, and then I started a, a, a doctoral program. So I'm in the 
the, the final year, hopefully, of my, of my dissertation work for a PhD in psychology. And my sort of specialty and area is social identity and, um, and competitive psychology. So, uh, so yeah, I'm just really super interested in this field and uh, coupled with my academic experience and some of the research I've done, um, I, I do a lot of field work. So I, I work mostly now in organizations. My, my consulting firm works with companies to help uh, both manage current conflicts within the team and also prevent them within the team and, and with customers as well. So, yeah, so that's kind of a, the gist of my background. Yeah, interesting. It's really fascinating stuff to me, especially when you talk about something like evolutionary psychology and, and uh, you know, the psychology yeah, of conflict in general, <laughs> just because, I mean, this is, this is who and what we are. I mean, within the animal kingdom, there's conflict all over the place. And a lot of that just has to do with survival and stuff. As, mm. as I, I'm no expert like you, but uh, let's dig in a little bit. I mean, what, yeah. what, is, what is kind of the, the nature nurture kind of aspect of this in terms of conflict in general? I mean, because you deal with it across a wide range of areas. I don't know how much you've dealt with it in your own personal life too, but talk to me about that nature nurture aspect. Yeah. I mean, listen, every, every, just from a high level perspective, every, every person um, experiences conflict. Conflict is, uh, can be considered the tension or the friction that gives us opportunities for change and for growth. Um, there really is no significant growth or learning or anything without some conflict. So it's really presents an opportunity. Um, but going back to what we're talking about is sort of this, this idea of where does uh, biology and culture or, or sort of uh, biology and individual experience meet to create conflict or cooperation. And so I, I think you hit, hit the nail on the head, first of all, that all you know, animals experience, I mean, we can call it conflict is, you know, realistic conflict, which is, you know, survival conflict. Um, Human beings being an ultra social species are the only, uh, well, uh, great, some of the great apes also experience similar conflicts, but they don't live in such large groups. So, so we being an ultra social species, meaning that we live in very, very large groups of people. um, We have all kinds of really complex social problems and social conflicts. And uh, those require a lot of different types of interesting and evolved uh, psychological mechanisms that have evolved over millions of years uh, to help us become who we are and navigate our increasingly complex social worlds. So, um, so we have some, you know, basic biology that leads us into things like aggression or leads us into things like conflict. And then we, and then that also gets you know, compounded or activated by things that happen in our world. So just because we have the capacity to be aggressive or the capacity to be in conflict uh, in certain ways doesn't mean that we are necessarily going to. It it requires things happening in our actual lives and experiences. So those two things, the biology and the the, uh, experience kind of happen, you know, they, they happen together and create Con- what what we might label as conflict, and and I think if we want to define conflict, I, I I tend to look at conflict through a human needs perspective, and so the way I would define conflict is the the real or perceived uh, threat or impediment to one's basic needs, yeah. and those can be actual physical needs, or they can also be psychological needs, um, and part of those is like having goals and stuff like that. So. So that, I mean, that's sort of like a general overview. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, I think it did. Yeah, thank you for that. And 
um, there's a lot of depth to it. Uh, it's, it's interesting to me because having gone through my own counseling and things in life, I've learned about words like triggers and things like that. We as sure. people have varying degrees of triggers person to person of certain things. And some of those could be based in uh, traumatic experiences or just, you know, what we've learned and experienced in life overall, traumatic yeah. or not. And uh, so, so how does this play? You know, I want to dig into the workplace stuff, but on the very basic kind of level of life, like I, I'm, as we're talking here, I'm thinking about road rage <laughs> a little bit. Like, yeah, yeah. Is do you have any insights on the kind of the psychology of that? Because you know, I was I was talking to a counselor again. I'm just kind of opening up myself because I used to deal with some of that. I mean, nothing too crazy. It'd just be like, oh, this jerk or whatever kind of thing because they were driving in what I perceived a crazy way or, or somehow threaten my space on the road. And I had to somehow get back and or flip them off or something. I'm just, I'm just yeah. being real. I don't really do those things <laughs> like I used to, but, and then this therapist said to me, well, I just go out on the road with different expectations. I'm just going to expect everyone's going to suck at driving. And then you're not disappointed and you don't have to get so upset about it too. But yeah. any, any insights on that? I'm just kind of riffing here, but what are your thoughts when it comes to something like road rage and silly little things like that, where people who don't know each other, they're interacting in a traffic setting. And then all of a sudden some explosion of sorts happens. Absolutely. I mean, I've dealt with, I've, I've experienced road rage myself. I think a lot of people do it's I've, and then I reflect on it and I go, wow, what, what just happened? Right. Like, yeah. so it's so bizarre that, that I got so emotionally triggered um, by that event. And I think if we look at again, conflict or triggering events, things that sort of um, send us into fight flight mode or what might be called an acute threat response mode, um, our sympathetic nervous system uh, gets activated and all kinds of things happen. And, and we kind of stop using our higher brain and start going into our limbic system, which is our emotional brain. Yeah. Um, it, uh, it It's worth kind of, I mean, in, in my analysis, it's worth looking through the lens of needs and what needs were being threatened in that moment, you know, and, and I think you can look at all conflicts, any any instance in which you're triggered, I think you can look at through this lens of what needs are being triggered. And, you know, um, we have a basic need for safety. That could be one that's happening, for instance, during road rage, where we, you know, the need for safety, I think, encompasses this need to have a predictable environment. And um, this part of the social mind, uh, or part of the mind in general, what it does is it, try to, it tries to kind of map the world. What is predictable? What is unpredictable? And um, I want to kind of be very cautious about things that are unpredictable. And the more we learn through life, the more our minds categorize things into predictable and unpredictable. And um, so when someone and, and the unpredictable things can be very scary, they can be triggering, et cetera. And so we try to get more familiar with certain unpredictable things um, and hopefully create more positive associations with them if we cannot or if they uh, sort of are unable to have positive associations with and they remain in this sort of negative association box. And so road rage is, I think, one example of someone doing something that's unpredictable, uh, potentially dangerous, and we get triggered by this sort of, uh, you know, someone's, th so I at least perceive a threat to my safety or I perceive a threat to my identity in some way where it's like I feel disrespected, right? Um, mm -hmm or uh, um, like they, they're not considering me, so they just do whatever they want there, how inconsiderate. And again, I think that's an identity need. 
So, um, yeah, I don't know. I you know, I haven't studied. I, I'm sure there's some literature in, the, in terms of the research literature on on road rage and what happens psychologically. I haven't studied it, but I'm guessing that it's like a safety concern and it's a respect concern. And those two things can be very triggering for people. Yeah. And clearly some people are more prone to rage in general <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, than, than others for a variety of reasons. Again, nature versus nurture stuff and sure. maybe their biology. You mentioned something interesting to me about uh, the limbic brain, which I, I was listening to some books and something, you know, some, some of my audience knows that I'm, I'm interested in uh, people like serial killers sometimes. But, uh, and so I think this is where it came from for me. So they were talking about the limbic brain uh, basically having to do with kind of our more animalistic nature, right? Like mm -hmm. our yeah. more basic survival needs, feeding, even sexuality and all that kind of stuff. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. You know, I'm not a neuropsychologist, but I've done, I've studied a little bit of it. And, um, and uh, the deeper you go into sort of towards the brainstem away from the outer layers of the brain, the outer layers of the brain, the, the sort of the folds on the brain are the cortical layers and some of the, you know, the prefrontal cortex, which is in the front part of the brain. Uh, those are our sort of higher cognitive, um, higher cognitive mechanisms are, are built in those brain structures. And the deeper you go towards the sort of middle or center of the brain, towards the brainstem, you get, you get, you know, sort of further back into our um, evolution, essentially. So you can go, I think some people call it the uh, reptilian brain, which is sort of deep in the core. Um, and then you, you kind of move outwards into the mammalian brain, and then eventually into primate brain and into sort of, you know, homo sapien, um, mm, when yeah. you get to the higher cortical levels. But yeah, so you're, you're, you're going deeper. And I think that when you react without any conscious awareness, and you react in a, in sort of fight flight mode without sort of ability to, um, to understand it or to control it, really, you're probably you're probably, yeah, you're probably activating what might be called the reptilian brains um, or the mammalian brain, the limbic system, the emotional system. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and there's, it's, you know, if you study neuropsychology, it's really interesting. There's like, they, they call these like the dual path model where there's, there's two ways that sensory information kind of comes into the brain. One goes into the limbic system immediately. Um, and I'm, I'm blanking on sort of the, I think it's like the hypothalamus or something. I, I, maybe that's memory, but I'm, I'm again, I'm not a neuroscientist, but uh, that's all right. it basically activates this sort of lower level response so that the, the, the organism can survive very quickly. But in the human, the dual path model, there's also a signal that goes to the higher cortical brain, which is a slower, um, a slower system. Um, but it's a more accurate system. So a lot of times the, the higher cortical, the higher brain is trying to override the reactions of the lower brain where it's saying, Hey, you're reacting as if that thing's a snake, but really it's a stick. Um, so just relax and parasympathetic nervous system activate. So we can just relax again. But unfortunately, a lot of times I think, especially when we find ourselves in conflict, the higher brain is not able to override the lower system. And we stay in a place of stress, fight or flight, defense and conflict. So, um, yeah, so, so I mean, so it's not, it's not an optimal uh, system, unfortunately, but it, but it does work a lot. It just doesn't work all the time. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting as, uh, and I appreciate you explaining some of that too. It's, I, th I think about the, what you mentioned about people feeling safe. And also I think there's an element sometimes for some of us, uh, maybe there's just an element of winning that, that probably ties back into the identity thing you mentioned in a, sure. in a sense of 
it's interesting culturally on various levels and layers that we uh, do all kinds of things to one up ourselves in society. And I think traffic's one of the easiest ways for that to happen because in general, you don't know these people, but you can kind of get some sort of power trip out of <laughs> some nonsensical uh, road rage incident. And some people, that's it. You go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, that's a really interesting perspective. Like, uh, you know, I, you might, that might, you might have something there because even if it's not that we're trying to one up them, we don't want to be one upped by them. And maybe when someone cuts us off or they do something inconsiderate, maybe that's what's partly being activated is that we're feeling like, oh, this person's trying to, trying to win or trying to one up me on some level, you know? Yeah. And we don't want to let that happen. That's kind of the basis, as I understand, of these old defensive driving courses. I mean, I've never done one, but I, it's instead of driving on offense, you're just driving, making yourself uh, safe for whatever's going on around you instead of pretending like we're all on the, you know, Indy Speedway kind of thing. We're all racing somewhere. Well, everyone's generally going different places. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's funny, too. There's a patience element when. Yeah, I've been in situations where I'm trying to leave a parking lot from a big event, sporting event, concert kind of thing or whatever. And so everyone's trying to get to a certain place there, which is the exit and then home, yeah, which is yeah. the same for everybody. But it's like, I see it all kinds of, and once or twice been in my own little skirmish of sorts with some foolish thing so that someone can save an extra two seconds or not. And then they won't let someone in. And it's just a lot of oh, crazy yeah. nonsense. Uh but, well, you know, there's lots of there's lots of research, especially in the evolutionary psychology research, uh, that kind of uh, supports the idea that um, we have we have biological mechanisms in our brains in in our psychologies that um, create, maintain, and and really strive for social hierarchies. And so, you know, and, and we want status. Status is sort of a basic a basic striving need for a lot of, uh, from, for human beings, I think in general, and even for great apes and, and even in, in, in other mammals. Um, so yeah. anytime that we feel like someone is one upping us or someone is trying to get the better of us or trying to rise to power over us. And we haven't, you know, been a part of <laughs> electing them to do that in some way, we're, we're not willing, we're not willingly letting them take the leadership position uh, or the, the, the position that kind of takes first spot. Um, yeah. I think we're going to get triggered. You know? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I could go deep. There's a lot of stuff I've, I've back in the day, I had a Dodge charger Hemi and I was racing people. There's all kinds of weird stuff and and it oh, differs wow, yeah. men, men and women at times, you know, men Absolutely. tend to do more yep. racing kinds of nonsense. And, and sometimes women have certain things. And anyway, Outside of the road rage thing, I appreciate that we kind of, I think that's a good place to have started anyway, uh, elaborating yeah. into the workplace and a lot of the stuff that you do, if you don't mind, as we kind of maybe transition a little bit. Um, do you have any sort of examples as we kind of dig into the mechanics of this? And then, of course, the mechanics of hopefully finding peace. I know you have kind of a quote, some of the material you sent me, which is unity and mutual respect. That is my mission. So uh, what are some examples where that starts to break down or things obviously without naming names and stuff or situations maybe that you've dealt with? <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, there's so many different types of um, conflicts that can happen at work. They're very similar to conflicts that can happen anywhere. Uh, 
but there are some themes, I think, and there are some differences from outside of the workplace. So workplaces obviously have um, particular power dynamics where certain people are uh, in charge of other people, and that can play a role in conflict. Um, uh, certainly, there are even when you're have, even when you're in conflict with coworkers, etc. Um, you know, you could you could perceive someone as sort of out to get you, or the, you know. Um, undermining you in some way, which ultimately at the, at the end of the day, the power dynamics only matter because they affect your personal bottom line. So if, if you're not getting along with your boss uh, and, and it ends up you getting fired, then, um, you know, that, that cuts off a significant portion of your, of your ability to pay for food and, and shelter and clothing. Um, and, and so that's a scary thing. And so that, that's why I think power dynamics uh, or, or just, having a, a conflict with someone who has more control over your livelihood uh, is particularly triggering. It can be scary. You know, I, I, no one wants to get fired, you know, and some same thing I think goes on the other side where, you know, I think a lot of leaders having conflicts with um, employees are, they're certainly, they're certainly afraid, at least in America, they're certainly afraid of being sued. They're afraid of, um, of losing a valuable employee and having to spend a lot of money to replace them. Um, they don't want to be perceived in a negative light. They don't want it to affect other employees in the company. Uh, so there, there's a big, there's a big cost to them too if they have a conflict with employees that leave. So there, and 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 again with coworkers, like if two coworkers sort of at the at the same level are having a conflict, at the at the very least, it can cause a major amount of stress. And having stress at work is very unpleasant. It's not a, it's not. No, no one likes to go to work every day, whether you're in the office or remote and just feel like I've got this person that I've got to deal with who I don't like and they don't like me or whatever it is. And so there's all kinds of conflicts that happen. And I think, um, uh, you know, I, we could, I could go into some examples of things that I think uh, would be sort of general themes that I've seen, if that would be helpful. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. It's, I mean, as, and as we go in there, I just it occurs to me that just like in the road rage, Everything here is a two-way street, so to speak, no pun intended with road rage, but sort of intended yeah. too. But it's like in any relationship, whether I'm just a customer at XYZ Incorporated or uh, we're on the street to, you know, driving near each other, it's all, a, it's all kind of a mutual interaction. In other words, it's about the perceptions Absolutely. of both people. It's, you could sit a separate person in the same driver's seat, again, so to speak, of life uh for the same situation and they and they would have different results and different uh emotional responses and stuff to things so i, th I think it's worth at least acknowledging the very very important and crucial aspect of ownership of ourselves uh, as as we deal with these things and realizing yes there are other things that on the other end of the two-way street relationships all around us in business that uh might need to be adjusted too, but yeah, go go ahead if you don't mind about some of the examples and things that, that sound like you wanted to get into. Yeah, well, I mean, I I think it's worth yeah. Um, what you just said is very important. Uh, most most conflicts is absolutely a two way street. It's not one person doing wrong and the other person is a helpless victim. Usually, what I what I've found in my experience in workplaces and and in general is that they're both parties are contributing to the conflict in some way. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's a real problem in terms of actually solving it. It becomes a real problem if both are not willing to own their roles in it, or at least start to examine and explore 
what their roles might be, even if they can't currently see that. So that that's a, I mean, there there are there are cases, of course, where someone is not. I mean, from an objective perspective, someone were to kind of view what's happening and really observe what's happening. There are some there are some cases where one person really isn't doing much wrong at all. Um, you could look at their communication and their emails and listen to them and watch them in meetings, and you're kind of like, I don't get why this other person has such a problem with them. And yet they do. Um, so sometimes that's happening, um, you know, especially in cases of like harassment or something like that. But yeah. I would say that the majority, at least the things that I deal with, because we don't, we're not a legal firm. So, you know, we get called in when a company has, you know, either they have, they suspect that there's a conflict or that there has been a major conflict. They've gone through a official legal investigation to, to determine if there's harassment or discrimination. And then they determine there hasn't been after the investigation. And now they need to figure out, okay, what do we do to get these people to get along better since there actually wasn't any evidence of harassment or discrimination? That's when we come in. So we don't really get to see that too much. I'm sure there's legal firms that can tell you all day long about, you know, people getting harassed and stuff, but, um, yeah, but yeah, there, it's absolutely a two, two way street. And, um, I see a lot of unfortunately what happens is when people start to not get along at work, um, if they don't nip it in the bud right away, which means, you know, as soon as someone feels like there's been a miscommunication, a misunderstanding, they feel a little triggered or something. If they don't have the skills to bring it up in a respectful, calm way, address it, or, or, or if they don't feel like the environment is safe for them to do that in, like they might get retaliated against or punished if they bring it up or something like that. Um, if it doesn't get nipped in the bud right away, it usually ends up festering and growing. And then what happens is when, you know, we come in a lot of times, what happens is, is either one or both of the parties have what I would call what, what's called a hostile attribution bias, which means they are basically um, now looking at everything the other individual does as hostile. So even if it's a totally benign question, the person just sends an email, asks a question, it's like, it can be perceived as, oh, see, he, he's trying to catch me doing something wrong. He's questioning me. He's challenging me. Mm-hmm. And there's this hostility. And if you looked at it objectively, you'd go, no, it just sounds like a question to me. But but that ends up occurring. And the people get in these stuck in these conflicts. And they're unwilling to believe that the other person isn't being hostile. And that's really difficult. So that that's what takes a lot of one-on-one coaching and starting to reframe and re-understand or re-perceive uh, each other and start to rebuild trust, which is, which is the thing that needs to be rebuilt typically. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's uh, that's very interesting stuff because, and I'm, and I'm thinking in terms of, you know, my audience knows I have two boys, 11 and nine and you know, they're great. They love each other a lot as a lot of siblings do, but at the same time, it's like they all live under the same roof. They're growing up together. They're going through all these different stages together, different times and stuff. And so, conflicts come up whether it's the toys or the tv or the or the whatever it's just it's interesting to me that this stuff continues on into adulthood yet we you know we adults are usually the parents and we (laughs) we're supposed to step in with with kids not that i'm not trying to digress it's just it's the same kind of stuff from the playground it's just different objects that are involved as as an adult it's it's not the the playground equipment and the action figures and the things that are the subjects of kids disputing but it's whatever in the workplace um, yeah yeah and and the more the more complex um and diverse our lives become you know we're when we're kids we have a very sort of limited scope of experience we you know 
we and and we're not in charge of our own you know survival and that kind of stuff so um yeah. our, our social life is like what's really important especially as like adolescents and stuff and and you can get very very triggered and in major conflicts when things happen in the social world whereas you know in adult life um i think it, it expands out into actual survival stuff like so if you're at work and your your workplace is threatened or you're threatened by your your, your job's threatened or something like your actual security, your actual livelihood, the money that you use to put food on the table, all of that. And then, and then that plays, you know, that can be in under, you know, perceived threat. And then that also plays into feelings of, you know, potential shame or potential regret and uh, looking at oneself in a negative way because they failed and all that stuff. So there's all kinds of things that are playing into conflicts, especially when we're talking about work, workplace conflicts. Yeah. Very true. So when it comes to the workplace conflicts, um, do you want to paint a picture of sorts as to, I don't know, maybe a scenario and most importantly, like, how do we go about resolving? What do you do when, you know, here they call in Jeremy and it's, it's time to, <laughs> to get down yeah. to business literally and figuratively to fix whatever's going on. What does that look like in a perfect world where, okay, Obviously, it wasn't perfect because some conflict arose in the first place, but now we go on the upswing towards resolution and hopefully positive places. What, what does that process look like? And, and also, what, I don't know if you have any specific scenarios, but tell me some more about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, let me, let me start really quickly with like a baseline, baseline theory about something. So f- first of all, when we're talking about, I think when we're talking about conflict, um, really really conflicts emerge there's two there's two basic types of conflicts i think that most people kind of consider in terms of categories one is a task conflict and one is a relationship conflict task conflicts are fairly easy typically fairly easy to figure out you know this person want has to do this this other person has to do this those two things are like sort of impeding one another from getting done and we just have to be creative here to figure out how they get done um that's typically not what we get called in for we we're more called in for the, the more complex conflicts, which are relationship conflicts. Um, relationship conflicts are all about, they're, they're centered on, on basic communication. And in basic communication theory, you have what you have on one side, you have the, the messenger, you have on the other side, the receiver. And the messenger has a message, they have an intention with the message, and then they have a, a method of delivering the message, right? So you know, talking, uh, whether you're talking, you're texting, you're emailing, whatever, whatever that delivery method is, you have the, the messenger has an intention and, and and then they have the actual content of the message. And then on the receiving end, and this is the difficult part on the receiving end, the receiver in, in, in order to accurately get the message, a, they have to understand the content B it has to be reflective of the actual intention and C the delivery method cannot skew those things. So it has to be, you know, so, and I'll, I'll get, you know, so I'll, I'll put this into practical terms here. So I have, for instance, one thing I deal with a lot is if we have, let's say a very sort of a type personality, someone who's a very direct uh, talker, they talk fast, they talk loud, they think very quickly, that sort of thing. And, um, and they're interacting with an individual who is has a different communication style. They process things more slowly. They speak a little bit more passively, a little softer. Um, they're not so blunt. 
and that kind of thing, right? So there's these two styles. And I see this both with spouse, you know, a lot of times opposites attract. And so I see a lot of spouses like this, uh, friendships are like this. Um, one person's very A-type, very charge ahead, and the other person's like very go with the flow and kind of kind of goes slower. And this happens a lot at work. And so um, it, it could be a, a lot of times the intention is totally misperceived because the method, the delivery method is um, not being registered by the receiver. And I'll, let me get, get out of the technical terms for a second. So, uh, per, you know, Jim is talking, Jim is the A type and he's, he's talking to Sarah, who is the, who is B type or slower. And, um, um, well, let me, let me, let me, let me make it to two men, let's say. So Jim is the A type and talking to, um, Edward, who is the B type and, uh, Jim, Jim starts talking very fast. He wants quick answers. He expects a response and Ed has to take a little time to, to respond to like really process it. And he, so what he's starting to feel, Ed's starting to feel that he's, he, he's starting to feel a little intimidated because of the, the intensity with which Jim is speaking. Jim's talking very fast. He's starting to get loud and Ed's starting to feel a little intimidated and a little triggered and a little defensive. And it's starting to make him slow down even more and not able to process what's, what's being thrown at him. And because he's so slow in responding and he's not really reacting to Jim's message, Jim starts to think he's not being heard. And Jim starts to feel like, why aren't you responding to me? Why I feel like I'm talking to a wall here. Why can't you, why can't you uh, respond more quickly? I'm just trying to get a quick answer. And it, both of them, it sort of cyclically exacerbates each other. The more that Jim gets intense, the more it makes Ed want to shut down and get quiet and escape. And the more that he does that, and more it makes Jim want to get louder and more intense so he can get heard. And this is something I see a lot. And, and so sometimes it literally just takes um, a, a changing of, the, uh, well, at least not a changing, but an understanding of the delivery methods of each. So that's, this is something that, you know, we would deal with in, in a, a transformative dialogue or a facilitated dialogue of um, trying to understand, okay, what is each of your styles and how do we start to reframe or reperceive the messages we're getting when that style is, is in front of us. So when Jim is, so I'm just like to add, you know, when Jim is coming at you intensely, can you, recognize that he's not trying to intimidate you and that kind of thing. He's just talking very fast. And if he's, if you're starting to feel like it's too much, what kind of language can you use to come back at Jim and say, Hey, you're, you're, you're coming in a little hot, you know, something like, like it's a little intense, a little fast. I just need a moment to respond. Is that okay? Um, and Jim would also have to work on his end of hearing that and recognizing he's coming in a little too much for, for Ed, Ed's not trying to ignore him. It's Ed, Ed's not trying to escape the conversation. It's just feeling very intense for Ed. So he's got, so Jim has to slow down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes the, just the delivery method has to be worked on so that both of them can really get the intention of the other, because otherwise the intention is like, he's trying to escape. And the other one's like, well, he's just trying to intimidate me. And that's not the intention at all. The intention is actually, I need to get this question answered. And, um, and, and that's it. I'm not trying to intimidate him. So the intention can get totally lost in translation if the method, if the, the delivery method is not correct. So one thing we'll work on is, is changing how we perceive each other's delivery methods also. And, and then also actually working on, on changing it ourselves. Like, can I slow down when I'm talking to Ed or, Hey, when Ed's talking real fast, can I 
try to be more present. And when he, when it feels too intense, what do I say to him to let him know I'm, I need a second to process it. So just basic skills, you know, to sort of change patterns that, that are leading to, to destructive conflict. Yeah. Really good uh, scenario. And Jim and Ed, you know, it's, I think uh, one of the things that pops in my head, I, a lot of people have read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People back in the day by uh, yeah. Dale Carnegie. Um, but one of the things in there is, is kind of an ongoing topic is that when there's a tough thing on the table is to soften the blow with something nice, which can also sound a little uh, disingenuous and maybe condescending and depending on how people choose let's own ourselves again how we choose to interpret things but it's on edward's side he could just as easily go to a place of okay this is feeling conflictive so let me sidestep this a little to let's talk about how we're interacting instead of let's let's shelve the topic at hand whatever that is and what's i realize jim that uh you're trying to communicate and we might have a little different communication styles. Um, and so I'm, I'm not going to assume that there's any ill will, but I am feeling this way by the way this is happening. And I, and I realize a lot of men especially don't communicate that way. It's like, we just want right. to get down to business or at least pretend we're just so masculine or something, but it's, is there something to be said for that? Like going to a place of benefit of the doubt and validation to at least like, here's a timeout from whatever's whatever interactions happening. And I mean, it takes, you got to kind of be a little bit of a big person to, to do that in a sense of, you know, acknowledge and benefit of the doubt before we go straight into, oh, I'm feeling this way. And so now this has to blow up. <laughs> yeah, no, you, no, that's exactly right. You're exactly right. I mean, this is something that we do a lot of training and coaching in is being able to um, sometimes uh, it's been called courageous conversations or difficult conversations, but being able to to get out of the, the con, sort of the conflict itself or the, or the, or the, the content itself yeah. and get into the experience of the the experience of the interaction and, and talk about that. So exactly like you said, Hey, can we just put a pause on this for a second? I'm starting to feel this way. And that's where training can come in because a lot of people don't have the skills or even the, 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 the confidence to do that in a, in a, in a real time interaction where they can just say, can we pause for a second? I'm starting to feel this way. Um, you know, I, I don't want to make any assumptions, but I just wanted to bring that up so we can, we can get back to sort of an even playing field. Um, that's super important. And I, and I, I do like the idea of starting with positives, especially when you're about to give someone some feedback that they could be feel defensive over like you know if you're going to try to give some constructive feedback in some way um i I like to start with a positive depending on the situation depending on the dynamic of the relationship you might not need to or it might be a little weird or awkward to do so but a lot of times if you if you if you think that the person could become defensive what might be a good idea is to think about what what would it be that would be offensive to them so like if I'm about to tell them, you know, um, the, something about the communication style, like, you know, when you're, when you're talking really um, fast and your, your voice tone goes up, it starts to feel very intimidating to me. And if you tell someone that, if you, you know, focusing on just their behavior without judging it, they, you, you might make an assumption that they could get defensive because you're basically telling them that the way they communicate is wrong or something or bad or whatever, you know? So 
they they might get defensive. So if you wanted to start out with a positive, I would recommend like the positive being something that 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 counteracts the thing that you think they're going to get defensive over. So like you like you could start out in that sort of situation if you were going to give someone feedback on that to say you know um, we have such you know we have such a good relationship most of the time we communicate it's it's great and I think um, you're a great leader or you're a great you're a great partner here or we're, you know. And uh, so I just wanted to bring this up because occasionally I'm noticing this happen and I just wanted to bring it up so that we could really optimize our, our partnership or our relationship here. Yeah. You know, so just starting out with that kind of positive to just to set the tone. So they know you're giving them the benefit of the doubt. You, they know you're not trying to attribute this to some character flaw of them. It's just purely a behavior you're noticing and you're wanting to just bring it up so you can try to correct for it. Yeah. Great. I appreciate that. That's uh good insights as well. I, I think of it in terms of like diffusing a bomb. It's like, here's a bomb on the table that could blow up and, you know, worst case scenario, everyone end up dead. You know, that does happen in very, very rare cases and God forbid that happened, but um, anywhere in between two of some conflict or some yelling at each other or some other thing, it's like, okay, we soften the blow of the conversation, like you said. And I think that was a great example. And then, uh, between that validation and the kind words up front, it's, it creates a cushion where we can now diffuse the, you know, bomb, so to speak, uh, before yeah. it turns, it, yeah. before it becomes a, an active armed and ready to explode bomb. Uh, the, oh, this bomb is building itself. We are in control. <laughs> we don't have to let this bomb run its full course. We can turn it into a bomb that just, uh, we, diffused and threw in the trash and we move on and we learn some things about each other today. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I might even, I might even um, alter the metaphor slightly by saying that we have, we have here some energy and, you know, like, like nuclear energy can be used to create a bomb or it can be used for really creative, productive purposes. So yeah, yeah. what are we going to do with it? We're either going to let it fester and create a bomb, which is going to explode, or we're going to use that, those same materials not to create a bomb, but to create something uh, that's really creative. And the creative is our relationship's going to deepen or grow, or, or our, we're going to have more insight into each other. And so you know, we'll be able to work more effectively together. And that's the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that's one of the things you talk about, too, is how conflict doesn't always have to be a negative thing how we can kind of take and reframe. And like you said, that was a great, you know, twist on the analogy. I like it. Take and just redirect that energy um, in a positive fashion, which I think is, is a great thing in all areas of our lives. Um, but especially yeah. in our interpersonal relationships and especially in context of this in the workplace, how, how can conflict be turned into a good thing and kind of lead to more innovation and positive outcomes overall? I mean, I think, I think conflict really, I mean, if we look at it, a lot of people have this negative connotation with conflict. And I think that's one of the main um, endeavors of a conflict resolution specialist or a peace builder is to help people reframe the whole concept of conflict. So that when we, when we enter in, we, we just, if we can help reframe it to say, just because we're in conflict, it doesn't mean this is negative. This is actually an opportunity for growth. This is actually an opportunity to be creative, not destructive. And really reframing that because if you think about it, any, on, on, let's say on a personal level, 
your the experiences that you've gone through that have been challenging and that you've navigated and gotten through and and learned to be resilient through those are the things that really make an interesting um, human being right and it's not the easy stuff it's the hard stuff that makes an interesting human being and I think the same thing goes with with companies companies only get better and better and better when they run into problems and learn how to solve the problems so if you let a problem overtake you and just and and, and just quit or or go down the rabbit hole and spiral out of control with it or something, you know, that's a negative conflict. But if, if we let, if we come up to a problem and go, ah, this is, I'm glad we're finding this problem because it gives us the opportunity to make our product better, our service better, our culture better. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a great opportunity. So I think learning to reframe what conflict is and what it can lead to is really important. Yeah. Um, and I think the greatest, if you, you could look at the greatest innovations of all time and probably find how, how to trace each of them back to, to pro, you know, of course you, we would trace them back to problems that they solved and, um, and then all these sorts of problems that they had to go through in order to develop the, the sort of final products or services that we know today. Yeah. It seems to me that from a leadership standpoint too, um, I don't know if you have any insights here, like what leaders can do, to kind of create a culture that actually does this understanding that there's going to be some version of conflict arise amongst yeah. coworkers. Um, but what does a leader do? Like every month as part of a, a meeting of some sort, be saying if, if there's some conflict, as we noticed last week with Jim and Edward, uh, you know, not necessarily calling them out because I'd be a bad leader clearly, but as we've seen, there's been some conflicts at times in our workplace Um I want us. I want to challenge us if those things arise to stop, stand back, address address how we're interacting, and then find how we can take the conflict and not just oh okay we at least we didn't blow up at each other, but actually take it, and make something beautiful out of it, something innovative or even great for the company. Is is there any insights as to what a leader could do uh, from that standpoint of creating kind of that culture in the workplace? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I would say there's a sort of two main endeavors that should be undertaken to make sure we have peaceful cooperative cultures. Um, and, and by the way, no culture, whether it's in an, a workplace organization or whether it's in a, a society or a family system, no culture is free of conflict. And that's right. fine because conflict doesn't have to be negative. It can lead to positive results. Um, but in order for us to have a system in which, in which conflict can lead to you know, better results. Number one, I think it's really important to make sure people are, are trained in conflict skills on some level, even, you know, certainly, certainly leadership and maybe director and manager level, but even lower level employees to have some training in what it sounds like to um, have a difficult conversation in a constructive way, to give someone feedback, to receive feedback constructively, you know, some sort of training or coaching or something. So they have some skills because it's really tough to, to do anything about a conflict when you're experiencing one, if you have no idea of how to handle it properly. So, so proper conflict management skills is really important. Um, and, and, and in order for that to even have space to occur, we need to have a culture. So um, in addition to one important thing being make sure people are trained in conflict management skills. The other important thing is, um, how is your workplace serving rather than impeding 
your, your workforce's basic needs. And I don't mean just survival needs, I mean psychological needs, autonomy, identity, growth, uh, psychological safety, you know, stimulation. Um, uh, the, these sorts of needs need to be addressed. And the way that companies do them is by doing assessment. You know, a lot of big companies do this, but I think a lot of smaller companies, small, especially small business and mid-sized business, when they have, I mean, and especially when they don't have large HR departments to handle this, they don't do a lot of, of assessing. They don't, they, mm-hmm. and if they do do assessing, they don't do anything with the results. They'll, they'll send out a survey and they'll look at it and they won't do anything with it. And then it's super, that's super frustrating for people to have to fill out a survey, give feedback, and nothing ever comes of it. So doing assessments and then having a plan for what you're going to do with those in terms of addressing any problems that those assessments highlight. Uh, is really important. I think those two things, and and then you could have all kinds of methods of of getting people trained, and all kinds of methods of making sure that um, that the the areas that need addressing in your culture are addressed. You know, doing regular one on ones with between uh, direct reports and their managers, doing uh, regular um, activity team building activities, if ne- you know that kind of thing, doing regular team meetings, making sure everybody's feeling like they have enough autonomy making sure that things are transparent. I mean, there's all kinds of methods, but it's really important first to figure out what are the problems here? Where, where are we lacking? And then we can determine what sort of proper solutions need to be built in order to address them. Yeah. I think that's all great. And it's of course, individual corporations and whatnot can figure out what works exactly for them, but you're giving out some great principles. And and I think a lot of this can be applied all over life, Uh, you know, workplace, of course, but that is a big part of people's lives generally, and also in families and marriages and uh, friendships and all kinds of stuff. So um, I appreciate all the great uh, insights on all that. Um, Now, one thing I know as we get close to maybe wrapping up here, one of the things I know you talk about is conflict with customers. And the, the other day, for example, without naming any names, I, I personally was on the phone with some customer service folks from a particular company. And there's been this ongoing billing problem for uh, several months. And so I kind of was laying this out for them and saying, boy, these other folks have tried to solve this. And I'm hoping maybe you can finally solve this. And and it turned into this kind of this weird thing where this other person just kept saying, I do apologize. You know, this kind of weird. And it started to come off as just very passive aggressive and condescending and rude just i do apologize it's <laughs> and then just interrupting and there's nothing i'm going to be able to do finally by the way i did get it solved i had to kind of dig deeper and i had to get to some upper level folks but um but i i kept my cool i, I let them know i'm very upset about this but it wasn't yeah. some big cussing spree or something either so what are some insights on the the customer side? There's a lot of times there's videos out these days. People see this stuff on the internet and laugh. There's people use this term, Karen. I don't want to offend anybody about, oh, this, these are the type of people just come in. I want to see your manager because of this or that. And it's, you know, the perception is it's like silly, nonsensical stuff. What are your thoughts? I know I'm long-winded here, but I wanted to share my little no, story. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's a good scenario. I mean, it's very common, and um, uh, you know, the, the looking at things through a basic needs perspective is applicable across all s- social s- situations, including with customers. And so, you know, what are the most important needs for customers to get met? And you kind of highlighted one. You know, number one. You, you, the feeling that you're not, that you don't have control over it, where it's like, it's affecting either the money that you spent 
or the service that you've that you've tried to purchase, the product you try to purchase, you're not getting the value out of it that you needed, or there's some billing problem, so it's affecting your money or something. You know, yeah. that's that's really tough when you don't have control over that. And you need you need some um, someone to help. So I would say that you know one thing that I focus on we do we do de-escalation training for customer service agencies and um, and customer service departments. And you know one yeah. thing that we really focus on is. Um, Making sure number one, and and some by the way, if you if you see some some companies that do this, they do a great job of it. Um, especially, I'm finding banks do this a lot now. Um, their customer mm. service reps are trained a certain way. Um, validating and validating a lot of times requires reflective listening or acknowledging what the person's saying, paraphrasing it. So if if you if you say something and they can hear you and they go, okay, so just to be clear, this is what you're wanting, or this is the problem. Is that correct? And so that, that way, you know, the customer knows they feel, they feel heard and the customer also, and and the customer service agent knows I actually accurately heard them. So I I think that's a really important step. There can be an apology if, if it's not, you know, condescending or if it's done appropriately. Um, And usually the apology is just like a, you know, maybe a one-time apology if, if, if needed. And it can be about, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry you're experiencing this. I'm sorry, this is not living up to your expectations. And, and as soon as possible, getting the customer service agent um, to, to acknowledge that they're on the person's team. Like, I'm here to help you. I'm going to help you with this. I'm not going to leave you until you get this solved. Yeah. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. So, so you really feel like in that moment, you have an advocate on your side who has some power because if, if you don't, if they're just condescending, you feel like you've got no power, no control, you, you don't have any insight. And then I need to talk to a supervisor, right? And so maybe that person has enough power to help me. But so if a customer service agent can say, I hear you, I'm valid. I vet, you know, they're validating what you're saying. Um, I apologize. You're experiencing this. And I'm here to help you and I'm going to help you. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to let you go until we get this solved. Like that sort of thing really helps people feel a little calm, like finally talking to someone that actually cares. And that's the whole, that's the whole thing in terms of being um, resolving conflicts and and building pieces. Does this other individual or this group or this organization actually care about me? Do they care about my experience? You know, that's what we're looking for. We want to feel cared for. And if we don't, um, likely to, to lead into conflict. And if we do feel cared for, really deeply cared for um, in an appropriate way, then uh, likely to deescalate conflict. Yeah. Really good, good insights. And I, you know, and I've heard some of those, you may have trained some of the people I've talked to on the phone at times, some, whether they ultimately solve it or not in that particular, and it's not to say I have tons of little uh, customer service issues, but I've heard these techniques. It's, it's stuff that I kind of try to apply in my own life anyway, of just, you try to establish common ground first and foremost. And that's again, marriages, families, workplace, customers to business, you know, and it's, it's just, that's the way to then find peace quickly. So many of our wars in the world could be, if, if we didn't have to all just go straight to arms and start shooting each other, if we could establish some more common ground, but so there, there's a lot to be said about this. You're doing great work in the, especially in capacity of the workplace here. Um, do, you, do you have any insights on the, as we get ready to wrap up, I guess what I want to hear is if do you have any final thoughts and also I have one last question about this, since we're talking about customers, the customer is always right kind of thing. Is, is that something that needs to apply still? It seems like an old thing that uh, is a little too broad to me in my opinion, but 
Yeah. Any thoughts on that and final thoughts on the subject? <laughs> Multi-layered question. <laughs> well, okay. So let me, I'll, I guess I'll address the, the, the customers is always right thing. It, it, first of all, that totally depends on each organization's um, um, sort of ethos, right? They, you can decide whether you want to, whether you want to live by that, by that uh, principle or not. But um, at the end of the day, for, first of all, I think that you need to support your employees. And if customers are super rude to your employees, um, you need to determine where your loyalty is. And, and at the end of the day, what what is going to be more beneficial to your company to keep your employees happier, to keep your your those particular customers happy or something. But um, but I think that I, I I use the same idea with customers with any other person that we might be in conflict with. It's not about being right or wrong. It the stories that people are saying may not be accurate. They may not be right. We may not agree with them. Um, we may just have different versions of the same story. What's real though, and what's important to focus on are the underlying feelings in that moment. If we're, if we're looking to deescalate, if we're looking yeah. to not get into super conflict, it doesn't mean that we have to take, it doesn't mean that the feelings make anything real in the real world. It doesn't mean that we have to take their story seriously necessarily or believe them or agree with them just because their feelings are real. What it does mean though, is that we, we need to, we need to understand that if someone's feeling angry right now, um, that's an, that's a real feeling. It's not, it's not made up. It's real. And, and can we just be, can we, can we care for them in this moment in, in some way, you know, whether you're doing customer care or you're doing student care or you're doing um, coworker care, can we care for this individual in this moment? Because they're feeling a certain way. They're, they're, they're basically experiencing some emotional pain and I want to be able to care for them regardless of whether the story is, is real or not. So you know, there's, and that might be a complicated answer, but I think if we just keep that in mind, like, how do I just care for this person? If I don't validate them, if I just shut them down, if I reject them, if I'm very cold to them, if I'm not warm, um, it's going to escalate. If I don't do all those things, if I validate, if I treat them with kindness and really listen to them and have a, you know, more of a warm tone, uh, it's, it's much more likely they'll feel cared for, even if we can't come to an agreement on the story. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if that answers it. Yeah. Anymore. Good yeah. stuff. I appreciate that. And I, I, I think that's really important at the end of the day that, that people just feel cared for uh, yes. on all levels and in all relationships. And we've mentioned yes. several and um, well, and, and as we close here, um, do you have any ideas as far as literature or materials? I know you have uh, this, uh, this website, Pollock, peacebuilding.com pollock p-o-l-l-a-c-k peacebuilding.com and um you know any i've been asking people lately about their heroes too are there any heroes in this space of you know let's look to this person for some insights or obviously you're one of the uh, key players in this space these days too but final thoughts and materials people can turn to um yeah so uh well, I mean, I have a book out that just came out a few months ago. It's called the Conflict Resolution Playbook, um, so people can people can look to that. But there's lots of good, lots of good um, uh, books on conflict resolution. You know, Roger Fisher, William Urey are, are big names in, in this. They wrote a book called Getting to Yes, which is sort of a seminal work in in conflict resolution. Um, there's a book called I Hear You, which is all about validating. I can't remember the author right now, but um, it's a, it's a, it's not, he's not as well known. He's actually not a conflict resolution person, but the book is such a good book on, on validation techniques. 
Um, it's a great one. And if you're, if you're interested more in like really the, the, the core of peace building work, which is what we do, we take sort of international, um, the, the peace building frameworks that have been traditionally used in an international field and, and try to uh, reposition them for the American workplace and for now for uh, other workplaces in, in other countries as well. Um, but peace building work, if you're interested in that, there's a, there's a guy named John Paul Lederach who's written some great work on, on the philosophy and psychology of peace building, which is, which is awesome. But yeah, lots of good stuff in the world of peace building and conflict resolution. Cool. Yeah. Wow. Good stuff. I mean, we just scratched the surface here on a pretty deep and really fascinating topic. I am always fascinated by topics that affect all of us. And I dare say conflict is one that I think in my 40 years on, on earth, I've seen affect just about everyone I know in some capacity. So I yeah. appreciate tons of great insights and, uh, you know, certainly you've, you've brought a lot of value to the table. Uh, so again, PollockPeaceBuilding.com, the conflict resolution playbook, go look for those uh, materials. And of course people can con contact you through that website, I'm sure. And uh, can't thank you enough. And to our audience, as always, thank you for spending time with us. We're flattered and uh, until next time, empower yourself, empower the world around you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Empower Humans. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review this podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit EmpowerHumans.com. We'll catch you next time.